Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There is a really big problem in our curriculum and it needs to be addressed. This is the time to do it. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. Well, it's my great pleasure again to welcome another finalist in the Australian Women's Weekly Women of the Future Awards. Welcome to Short Black, Angelique Wan from Consent Labs. G'day. Hey there, Sandra. Now, unfortunately, your co-founder couldn't be with us today. What's she up to? How could she say no? Joyce is saving lives. So she's a junior doctor and she's unfortunately very busy at the hospital at the moment. Fair enough. Yeah, fair enough indeed. She's allowed to save lives, goodness me. (laughs) What we love about what you do is that you both are um, co-founders of Consent Labs, a youth-led not-for-profit organisation that revolutionises the discussion around sexual consent, harassment and assault. Goodness me, Angie, is there a better time for this to be at the forefront in terms of all media and education? No, I mean, there's definitely been a lot of national discourse about consent this year. But the funny thing is we've been working on consent labs for the past five years. So we've kind of been putting in the hard yards and building the consent labs program for quite a while now. And I think it it really wasn't until this year that people were ready to start having the conversation around consent. It's all really based on the toxic culture that's out there and the education piece, isn't it? Driven largely by an experience you had yourself. Can you share with us what that was like? I think it's an incredibly normalised experience that a, a lot of young people can probably resonate with. Joyce and I went to the same school. We both went to university and lived on campus at two different Sydney-based universities. And I think just being in that new environment, you're sort of thrown into the deep end of, you know, a whole host of new experiences like parties, going to clubs, drinking, living, you know, independently for the first time. And we didn't feel like the sex education that we received in high school equipped us for any of that. It was just, you know, incredibly normalized behaviors around sexual harassment and even assault that were occurring on campus and across university. And it was just something that was so common to the experiences of both Joyce and I, but also our peers, that we felt like something needed to change in terms of our education. Why did you focus on consent specifically? I mean, is that the root of it all, really, that education piece and getting a gender kind of equilibrium about what it means to everyone? You know, Joyce and I were asking ourselves that exact question back in second year of uni when we were sort of starting to grapple with, you know, why are these behaviours so normalised? And I think it does start with consent and, you know, the absolute lack of consent education that we received and our peers received when we were in high school. It's at the very crux of it, being able to respect the other person and feeling 
confident and comfortable enough in yourself to be able to vocalize and assert your boundaries and knowing that that's okay. You're allowed to do that. And the other person should and needs to respect whatever you've said to them. But, you know, up until I started educating myself around consent, I didn't realize that that was okay, that I was allowed to have boundaries and I was allowed to say no. And without that, you know, that's when things like harassment or assault then happen. You're both a product of a private school's education. And, you know, a lot of young girls that I talk to who go through the private school education system, you know, it's not an uncommon theme. But I wonder where we in society derailed that we've reached a point where, you know, it seems to me young men and young women aren't speaking the same language. They're on such different pages. How do you think this happened? I mean, there's always been so much taboo around sex and around consent. It's just never really been spoken about honestly and freely. And I think that's really where it goes wrong. When there's a lack of education, good quality education, particularly in the curriculum, young people will turn to other forms of education. So they'll turn to things like social media or they'll they'll turn to things like pornography, which we all know clearly does not convey consent or you know, healthy sexual relationships, but that's what young people are turning to and internalizing. So I think the taboo and the stigma that surrounds conversation around sex and consent is no good for anyone. It's actually extremely harmful. Of course, what really propelled this into the national spotlight was what was occurring in private girls and boys schools and, and that online petition from that young woman, you know, demanding that there be a better discourse. Walk us through that process. I mean, you guys had already set up consent labs and yet all of a sudden it was on the national stage. It was definitely a really interesting time. I mean, over the past few years, we have tried to established with high schools and with tertiary institutions like universities how important consent education is and we initially faced a lot of pushback I think a lot of people were quite hesitant to open up the conversation around consent again it it felt incredibly taboo too sensitive and, and like it would upset some stakeholders like say parent bodies for example and I think the whole consent labs team were actually incredibly thankful around the incredible activism that's gone on this year by people like Chanel Contos, Grace Tame, Brittany Higgins, because people could no longer bury their head in the sand. They could no longer ignore the problem or push it down the track and say, oh, it's too hard. It's too hard. And keep going with the status quo. They, they had to face the fact that there is a really big problem in our curriculum and in our institutions, and it needs to be addressed. And this is the time to do it. Well, you're right about Chantelle Contus's petition. She set that fire off. Mm. And then I think, you know, things happen for a reason. You know, this confluence of events with Brittany Higgins and, as you say, Grace Tame being made Australian of the Year. You know, all of a sudden we're confronted with a genuine problem and conundrum. I mean, from a parent's perspective, I get some pushback when you bring up this subject. You know, some, sometimes I feel like it should just be dealt with in-house and at home. Why is the education system the best place for this? I actually think that for consent education to be effective, it needs to be a holistic conversation. So I do really believe that parents are a big, big stakeholder in the consent conversation. Obviously, you know, they're a really big influence on the child's values and their understanding of the world. But the only way to ensure that 
evidence-based, good quality, inclusive consent education is being delivered to students consistently is through a national framework like the curriculum. That's the only method, the only way in which you're going to ensure that it is consistently being delivered to all students equally across Australia. Yeah, having said that, parents are definitely a really important part of the conversation. You can't just talk about consent once at school and then never touch it again. I think it needs to be a continuous, ongoing conversation at school and at home. I guess it makes sense really because sex is such a taboo subject for so many people and it's not easy to say to your parents, look, I'm having sex or I want to have sex. No, not easy at all. Yeah, I guess the the school curriculum, you know, creates an independent kind of comfortable environment where it can just be dealt with, like you say, at that core level and where people don't need to necessarily feel exposed but they get taught social acceptable behaviours, don't they? Yeah, and I think the other thing to note is that parents have the best intentions at heart. They want their children to be in safe and respectful relationships, but also acknowledging that they themselves didn't have good quality sex or consent education. What? How can you say that? It's suggesting all of us are old and we came from another generation. So true. No. (laughs) I, I mean, I'm just saying that even up until today, the quality of our sex and consent education is pretty lackluster. So we can't expect our parents to be, you know, comfortable with having these hard conversations all of a sudden. They themselves need to get this education firsthand. And then from there, they can start to have conversations with their children. Do you understand and have any empathy for the broader community who either find this difficult to get their head around, let alone you know, the evolution of the gender world, you know, the new world order with non-binary, et cetera, et cetera. It's a lot to manage. For sure. I mean, for sure. It is an incredibly complex and I think, again, like not shying away from education. So we provide sessions not only to students, but also to parents and to educators. So teachers, because, you know, like I said, I think Both of those groups have the best interest of young people at heart, but they just don't know how to facilitate these conversations. So they need the education firsthand. So what are some of the typical messages you give in your workshops and what are some of the typical questions you get? So a lot of the work that we do is around destigmatizing the taboo that exists around sex consent and the words that we use to communicate around sex and consent. We straight up ask students to start using words for example, like penis, vagina, clitoris. So they start to get comfortable with using those words that people traditionally try and shy away from. And just acknowledging, you know, that this is an uncomfortable conversation. It might feel a little bit sticky or a little bit awkward at first, but the only way that you get more comfortable with having it is through practice and continually trying to use phrases around consent or use phrases associated with asserting your boundaries. That's really how it becomes more comfortable. It sounds to me like you're really trying to normalise the conversations around sex and by default remove that stigma. Yes, exactly. Normalising those conversations. So asking students to practice role plays or scenarios and say, how would you actually ask for consent in this situation? Or what would you say if someone tried to cross your boundary? So actually getting them to say the words and the words come out of their mouths so they start to feel like it, it is normal. And it is practice. Another really big part of what we do is 
letting everyone know that consent and sex education is a conversation for everyone. So it is a really inclusive space, um, regardless of how you identify, you know, your gender, your sexual orientation, your religious or your cultural background, everyone is welcome to the conversation in terms of consent and it's relevant to everyone because I think that's that's often left out of our mainstream consent education or sex education. When I was growing up and arguably in the last decade or so, it ended up focusing on just no means no. Mm. But that simply wasn't enough because there are so many scenarios where there's discomfort and awkwardness. I mean, you can only just imagine at what point do you speak up? Give me some examples of, of how you encourage people to find their voice in those awkward situations. So exactly that, teaching people that the absence of no is not consent. The onus is on both parties or all parties to be actively checking in with the other person, seeing if they're enjoying it, seeing if they're comfortable and creating that really safe and respectful place so the other person feels comfortable to say no if they want to slow down or to stop. We talk through different ways that you can ask for consent and it doesn't have to be really awkward. It can be as simple as, do you like this? Are you into this? Do you want to try this? So, you know, asking those open-ended questions, looking for things like body language, just encouraging, you know, young people to put the respect of the other person and the comfortability of the other person as first priority. I noticed you actually had a terrific champion, Bryony Scott, who's the principal at Winona Private Girls School. Yeah. You know, she's married to Mark Scott, who runs the education department prior to running a university here in New South Wales. Yep. So educators seem to be on board. Generally, what's the take-up and response been like? It varies between institutions. We work with some incredible schools that are wholeheartedly behind consent education. They understand the need for continuous conversation and discourse around consent. So, you know, we've worked with schools that have implemented a 7 to 12 program, which is incredible. And they're looking at doing parent sessions and they're looking at upskilling their teachers. So that's really incredible. But, I mean, that's not always the case. There are definitely schools that still seem hesitant or a little bit nervous about continuing or having these conversations around consent, really, honestly. But I think, you know, baby steps, one step at a time, really. You must have welcomed the Federal Education Minister's adoption of this into the curriculum, but that doesn't actually mean it's rolled out in schools across the country, does it? No, no. It is very dependent on the state and territory departments of education and then on the onus of, you know, the individual teachers as to how they choose to roll out this education and their own comfort level and knowledge. There's actually a whole host of good reasons and and good research underpinning the need for good quality consent and respectful relationships education, which is why we do what we do. Can you tell me more? There's been global studies that have been conducted by, say, Planned Parenthood Federation or even by UNESCO that shows that good quality consent and respectful relationship education actually delays the age at which someone will engage in a sexual activity. It also means that when they do decide to engage in, say, something like sex, that they will be um, less risky about it. So, for example, there's delayed or reduced SDI transmission, less instances of unplanned pregnancy, and, you know, increased feelings of self-confidence and self-esteem. I think that's why it's important to have 
external providers or there is a space for external providers in these conversations because this is all we do. Like we know the ins and outs of consent and the nuances and the questions that young people are going to ask and instead of putting the, the burden or the onus on teachers to be experts in absolutely every facet of the curriculum, being able to lean on external providers in certain areas I think is really important. So what age do you think these sorts of workshops, what age groups should they start? You know, should parents allow year seven or when do you think it should begin? I mean, I think teachings around consent and establishing boundaries can really start from a young age, say from like primary school age. And as a student gets older, you can nuance the conversational add layers. So we present to year seven to 12. That's our area of expertise. And it really depends on the individual school and the individual cohort where they feel their students are at and if they're ready for, you know, conversations around sex. But I think also just acknowledging the statistics as to when young people are engaging in sexual behaviours and it's not uncommon for students around year seven to year nine to start exploring. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I see the organisation will speak to over 10,000 students in this year alone and you've expanded to six states across Australia. That's a heck of a lot of work. How do you make it happen? It is a heck of a lot of work. It has been an incredible year of growth for us, but I really have to thank my team. So we have got an incredible team of volunteers that work on Consent Labs and you know they do all the behind the scenes work from running our incredible social media platform to content creation, to program development, then we've got a whole team of facilitators who actually go out to schools and to universities and deliver our material. And the best part about it is that we're all young people who are brought together by our passion of advancing consent education and, you know, rolling out inclusive consent education to young people. So I could not do this without my team. I had a look at your Instagram page, Consent Labs is where you can find it. And you're very heavily graphic driven. Uh, which I really like, and and that's got such a broad appeal. Is that a, a useful way to introduce people to the subject? Definitely. We look at our social media platform as an extension of our education, so we consciously like to keep our graphics and our Instagram platform really fun, really engaging for young people, for teachers, for parents, to show that you know the conversation and the education around consent doesn't need to be difficult, it doesn't need to be hard, and it doesn't need to be boring. It can be fun. And if you don't communicate in a current language, it doesn't cut through, does it? And I think that's the importance of having young people develop and deliver this education. We often get feedback from teachers after our sessions saying, 
it was so refreshing to have this education delivered by young people themselves because not only is the language relatable but also it's more relevant young students can look at our facilitators and say oh hey you're only a few years older than me I really identify with you or with what you're saying because you get what I'm going through and I think that ability to relate especially when it comes to really sensitive topics of consent and sex is really important I feel like young people have never been more engaged than they have been right now and through our Instagram we are able to connect with a lot of young people and one of the best parts about that is we've had a number of young people reach out to us via Instagram and ask us to get in touch with their school because they'd love to see better consent education and it's just so nice to see young people being so proactive and taking their education into their own hands when they recognize that what's currently being delivered isn't good enough and that they deserve more so it's actually been yeah, it's been lovely to see how engaged and how proactive young people are when it comes to their education. What sort of reaction are you getting from young men? Because it's not a one-way street. I mean, both genders suffer the same issues, don't they? All genders, I should say. All genders, exactly. And I think that's one thing that I really love about our program is that we are incredibly inclusive, non-judgmental. We don't put blame on a gender. All genders are a part of the conversation and all genders have a really big role to play. And I feel like that approach is really different from what exists on the market in terms of other sex or consent educators. So I think, you know, just letting everyone know that this is a really safe space. We all contribute to keeping it that way and there's no judgment here is really important. I noticed earlier in the year, I think it was around July, you had a a good chat with Paul Dillon, who's an educator and works in uh, the education space all over the country. And he mostly talks about alcohol, drugs and how it works with consent. But what he did say that I found quite interesting is that he's legally bound to actually notify authorities if there's been, you know, inappropriate behaviour. Are you caught in that conundrum? Definitely. So the concept is mandatory reporting and in New South Wales, it extends to teachers, educators, police, healthcare workers. And that's something that we're well-versed in. We understand what our responsibilities are as educators and we take that very seriously. And we're very upfront with students about that. So when we go into schools, we let them know that we are mandatory reporters and this is what it entails. So there's no hiding behind that. We're, We're really upfront about that. So what's the process like? Draw me a picture if someone comes to you and you realise, you know, you're bound by the mandatory reporting rules. What are your next steps? Our role in the process is really just to let the school know. So in New South Wales, the age of mandatory reporting is 16. But our role, if, for example, a student comes up to us, is to listen to them with kindness, compassion and respect. But um, it is ultimately a duty of care and that information needs to be passed on to the school who will then handle the matter according to their policies and procedures. I think you ticked every box, Angie. I mean, I really admire what you've done. As you say, it's, you know, five or six years old and yet, you know, the conversation's never been more current and more necessary. If you won the Women's Weekly Women of the Future Award, how would that help you? It would go straight back to Consent Lab. So we are a not-for-profit. We really do this out of wanting to ensure that young people get access to the consent education that we deserve. We're not doing this for profit. The money would go right back into the development of accessible programs. And so what that looks like and what's next on the horizon for Consent Labs is programs being rolled out to regional New South Wales first. 
currently we only really are able to reach metropolitan areas, but we really recognise that this education is, is relevant and necessary for students despite their geographical location. So a bit of a Consent Labs road trip is on the horizon for next year, which is quite exciting. We'll also be starting to do some development around consent programs for people with intellectual disabilities. Those projects are where the money would go towards. Wow, I didn't even think about that cohort, but you're so right. They need that education as well, don't they? Yeah. And it's another layer of responsibility for you as well as, you know, a pivot in in what you deliver and how you deliver it. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's really important to us is making sure that our programs are accessible and actually tailored to the people that they're being delivered to. So acknowledging that, you know, depending on, say, your culture or whether you are a person who has an intellectual disability or your religious beliefs, that the conversations around consent are going to look a little bit different. There are going to be certain nuances there. And so, you know, over the sort of medium to longer term, our priority will be to make sure that we have really inclusive, tailored and accessible consent education programs for a whole host of different communities. You talk about the religious and cultural kind of layers that are added to these conversations. Can you give me an example of when that's presented an issue for you guys, you know, perhaps surprised you in a way that um, you hadn't really considered? It's definitely a tricky one. I mean, myself and Joyce, we both come from cultural background. So Joyce is Chinese and I'm half Chinese, half Greek. So I'm very well versed in, you know, the difficulties of having open conversations around sex when you come from an ethnic background. But I think it's about being respectful of that and being respectful of the fact that people have different views and different values and trying to find a compromise. Consent doesn't only need to apply to sex. It actually applies to the everyday. You know, the concept of boundaries applies to things like your friendships. It applies to relationships with your family, relationships in the workplace. And so you can definitely still educate students on consent and communication and give them the practical tools and skills around those things without ever touching sex if that's what the parent or the school prefer to do. I really like your approach and in particular, you know, targeting kids from about 10 to 15 because based on your own experience, by the time you get to uni, sexual assault and inappropriate behaviour is rife. Exactly. It's too late. Mm, It's too late. And what we aim to do is to provide proactive education. You know, what we always say when we go in and talk to students is even if this isn't relevant to you at the moment, even if you're not choosing to engage in any form of sexual activity, it's not of interest to you, please listen up because it will be relevant to you at some point in your life or it will be relevant to your friends and you'll then be able to be a better friend and support network if your friend does go through something. So I think that proactive education, meaning that students can make an informed choice, they have all the facts and understand the risks and their rights is really important. Well, clearly you're super smart and well-educated, but this is a passion project and passion projects come from a place of you know, personal either trauma or enlightenment. And for you, it happened as soon as you got to university. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I I had never really thought about the concept of consent. It honestly hadn't crossed my mind up until second year of university. And it was at that point, I think I was reflecting on my personal sexual experiences. And, you know, there's a number of times in which I didn't feel comfortable, but I didn't know 
how to vocalize what I felt or how to vocalize that I, I, I wasn't comfortable with what was going on. Just things like catcalling, feeling pressured to say yes to something, or not really being able to determine whether a situation was consensual or not was just, it was rife, it was the norm. And I think that's not, that should not be the status quo. Everyone deserves to feel really comfortable in a sexual experience and that should be the norm. The definitions of sexual harassment and assault and what constitutes sex is often widely misunderstood. And I think it's really important for people to understand those definitions as they exist in the law so that they then know what their rights are. For example, a common misconception of what sex is is just penetration, but it actually also includes oral sex, which is really important to know if, for example, non-consensual oral sex has gone on and you feel like you want to report it to the police and that is actually sexual assault. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Yeah. Not something that I knew before Consent Labs at all. I've learned so much since um, building out the Consent Labs program. And look, I think the social media genie's out of the bottle, but it is so dangerous for young people, isn't it? And, you know, what's your advice to people in that space? So what we teach them is that consent, as it plays out in real life, is exactly the same online. There is that sense of digital responsibility that still exists in the online world, but you know that there's additional levels of risk that do exist with various social media platforms and it depends which social media platform you're you're using but I think talking students through consent still applies it's not any different to in real life and making sure that they understand the different support services and reporting avenues that exist online is also really important for example introducing them to something like e-safety and the different ways that they can turn to e-safety for support or for reporting is very important for them to know. Well, Angie, to you and to Joyce, wishing you best of luck in the Australian Women's Weekly Women of the Year Finalists Award. I really love what you do and on behalf of all parents, you know, I can't thank you enough because education's the key in so many facets of life and what you're really doing is providing solutions and personal solutions for people to apply to their own circumstances and you're empowering teenagers to actually understand, you know, what is a really confusing and difficult time for them. So good luck. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Sandra. You have been listening to Short Black, a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favourite podcast app.